the Anesthesia Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this Anesthesia Journal live broadcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about esophageal intubation, why it goes unrecognised, and we're going to be learning some lessons that have been recently learned from the coroner's court. Um, a recent coroner's report in the UK concluded that a healthy patient died as a result of unrecognised esophageal intubation. This did not seem to be the result of misinterpretation of a flat-end tidal carbon dioxide trace, but an apparent omission to check the capnograph after intubation and to perform clinical checks of the tracheal tube position. This live broadcast accompanies a new editorial from Professor Pandit and co-authors, and we're delighted to have Professor Pandit here with us today. Um, we've also got um, Professor Andy Smith and Professor Laura Duggan as well. So three professors and me, really great to have you all. Um, I'll just hand over to each of you just to introduce yourselves briefly. Um, so um, over we have in Canada, we have Laura. So hi, Laura. Uh, good morning. Um, it's 9.30 in the morning here in Ottawa, Canada. I'm an associate professor um, very proudly in the uh, Department of Anesthesiology and Pain Medicine here at the University of Ottawa. Uh, in Lancaster in the UK, we have uh, Andy Smith. Thanks, Mike. Hello, uh, I'm Andrew Smith. I'm an anesthetist in Lancaster here. I'm director of the Patient Safety Research Unit here uh, and a member of the Safe Anesthesia Liaison Group for the College and the Association and also an editor for Anesthesia. And congratulations as well on your election to Royal College Council as well. Today. Thank you, Mike. Um, and also, we have the author of the paper as well uh, from Oxford, uh, Professor J.D. Panda. Great to have you with us, J.D. Thank you. Um, so, so I introduce myself. I'm J.D. Panda, yeah. Professor of Anesthesia in Oxford and currently co-chair of uh, the Safe Anesthesia Liaison Group. So I'll go straight in for, with uh, a question for you, J.D., um, about the case itself. Can you briefly talk to us about the details of the case and, and what happened and, uh, and what the outcome was? Sure, I'll be very brief because, um, of course, the case is completely in the public domain, uh, particularly through the coroner's report, which is uh, openly accessible. Uh, and we cover that that in the editorial very briefly. This was, um, uh, although it was an emergency case, it was a, a stable appendicectomy um, in a middle-aged patient. Um, uh, so there was no um, urgency in that respect. Um, the anaesthetic details of the case appeared to be uh, routine. Uh, there was no apparent difficulty uh, with intubation. Um, but what happened next was that the patient rapidly deteriorated uh, and uh, went into a cardiac arrest uh, situation. Uh, in retrospect, what seemed to have happened was that the tube had been uh, accidentally misplaced in the esophagus and this had not been uh, dipped um, and when it was detected, it was all too late um, and the patient did not survive. Yeah. And in the editorial, you described the three broad categories of fundamental reasons for unrecognised esophageal intubation. So uh, just for the viewers, what, what are these three broad categories that it normally falls into? That's right. And, and the, the paper's entitled Lessons from the Coroner's Court. So we reviewed... Um, um, coroner's inquest uh, reports uh, of the sort of um, case uh, arising out of um, accidental esophageal intubation. And there seem to be three. So one is where the carbon dioxide monitor, the capnograph, was, was never applied in the first place or, or not used. Um, either it wasn't available or it was available and simply not used, which, which was clearly a deficiency. 
The second um, category is covered really through the or addressed by the No Trace Wrong Place uh, campaign or, or, or reminder. And this is a situation where there is a cardiac arrest situation and the lack of entitled CO2 is erroneously um, interpreted uh, as being due to the arrest, whereas it should be interpreted in this place, uh, tracheal tube. Uh, and this third category, which which we think is is potentially sort of new in in, in the sense of the, the coroner's reports, is that um, there's no cardiac arrest at least initially, uh, and the capnograph has been duly applied, but there's an omission or failure to actually look at the capnograph to confirm placement. So these seem to be the three broad categories um, to date. And just to bring Laura and Andy in, because. I've noticed in the last few years, at least, uh, monitors changing and becoming more advanced. And um, the capnographs that, that we use on our machines now are, don't resemble anything at all that I was using as a trainee. Um, they're, they're just completely different from, from what we had in the past. Um, do, you, do you feel like this third category is something that we need, maybe need to think again about, that we perhaps not part of the traditional teachings of misplaced tracheal tubes, the failure to actually look uh, at the capnograph as it is uh, and, and notice that there's an abnormality there. Andy, do you want to field that first? Uh, yeah, I can start. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's two things to say that occurred to me. Um, one is that uh, I see a lot of people looking at the capnograph when they put the superglottic airway in to see whether the placement is adequate. And I, don't actually think that's the best way of checking that. But the problem with this case is that the, if you like, the gold standard method for checking the placement of the tracheal tube, the capnograph, um, wasn't used. And, you know, it's a question of making best use of the equipment that you've got at your disposal and thinking what the purpose of what you have uh, should be. But if I remember rightly, JP, the, uh, uh, the, um, the capnograph display, the waveform wasn't actually on the monitor in this case, was it? So if they want to see it, they'd have to somehow arrange the monitor screen. And I find that I find that quite difficult because it's such a basic part of the monitoring. In our hospital, the, the waveform is there all the time, both in the anaesthetic room and in theatre. So I, I, I find that a bit odd, personally. Yes, you're right. Um, the coroner commented that um, the, the default um, setting on this particular version of, of the monitor or at least the way it was used in this in this location was such that it was the pressure waveform that was by default um, displayed, and at least one person attending the coroner noted um, did misinterpret this for a while as being the capnograph, um, which is sort of un understandable. Uh, and and so you're right; it's it's is is surprising that the baffling and, and it's an easily correctable um, um, aspect. Uh, of, of monitoring. Laura, have you seen these issues with monitors in, in use at the moment? Yeah, well, I mean, our, you know, our standard is to have pressure flow in litres per minute and then CO2. Um, and so that's that's the monitor that that we use standardly. It's the monitor that you'll see in the ICU ventilators. And and I think that this is uh, this is heartbreaking. I mean, it's 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 this is a this is a heartbreaking lack of of basic 
what should be considered basic monitoring um, and and inconsistent monitoring of the um, of the equipment that you have available. It's almost like saying, um, well, you know, you you can have propofol, but you know, you're going to have to ask for it, and it's two doors away. You know, um, okay, it's available, but you know, you have to really search for it, and and to to search for a waveform capnography is is just asking asking for trouble uh, and to say that you know well you know if you really are worth your salt as an anesthetist then you should be able to you know reprogram the computer with each uh patient is and asking for trouble and um and inconsistency anybody walking into a room should be in that institution should be should have the expectation, the reasonable expectation that the monitor is set up consistently in each and every room and provides basic monitoring. And, and to not have waveform capnography when it's available is simply heartbreaking. Um, we uh, we discussed this on Twitter and, and if you don't mind, um, uh, JJ, can I ask you, um, uh, you know, I think any uh, what if what if somebody took the stance that any any anesthetist worth their salt would have recognized this uh, immediately and uh, esophageal intubation should never happen to somebody who's actually good at their job. <laughs> I mean, clearly that 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 comment is is framed, you know, in a sort of judgmental way, almost um ascribing blame and this is something we're trying to move away from the language of safety is very much trying to move away from that in fact i think you said it correctly you know in in your earlier um um comments that that the the, the equipment that that the infrastructure should be around us to, to make things easy and to facilitate safety it should not fall on the the human element to to be the the, the safety barrier um for obvious reasons so, so the, the the emphasis of the editorial, the, the language of it, is that it could happen to anyone. It, it really could happen to anyone because this particular event seemed to be a, a, an omission. Um, you know, we, we don't know in, in detail, but as described by the coroner, it seemed to be the, the omission to, to check what was there or what could have been there, depending on the, the configuration of the monitoring. And of course... It's possible, and you know, we think of mistakes that we all make in in other walks of life. You know, whether it's I don't know driving or on the television or something. We we think we've done it. You know, we think we checked, uh, and and therefore it's imprinted in our in our minds as if we have, but we haven't. Uh, so so the the towards the end of the article, we make some suggestions how that element could be addressed to to be filled in. So no, this shouldn't be a judgment, uh, you know, and certainly not a single event uh, as a judgment on um, performance uh, or quality of the anaesthetist. And this wasn't a highly complex case as well, was it? It wasn't like an airway case or a, a transplant or a patient with serious comorbidity. It was a straightforward case in a low-risk patient um, with a low level of clinical complexity. Um, but... Is there something a bit strange going on here? This is perceived sort of simplicity might have um, some way contributed to the problems that were encountered. It, I mean, I'll kick off and speculate. One can only speculate, but there is what's called the Yerkes-Dodds relationship in psychology, where a little bit of um, stress improves, uh, and a little bit of stress and arousal improves performance. 
and too much stress obviously causes it to deteriorate. There's a sort of bell-shaped curve between stress and performance. Uh, and so if, as you say, this was very much the lower end of stress and almost that the team, everyone was sort of too relaxed about um, what the case that, that they were faced with. And one potential element of that, which we do highlight in the paper, was that the assistant um, was uh, invited first to intubate. Um, I forget it was an anesthetic nurse or a, an ODP, an op operating department practitioner. Um, but anyway, this, this is something the coroner noted. And um, in our wider discussions, um, you know, in Salg and elsewhere, um, clearly this was very unusual for most centres, but there are some centres where it does appear to be the norm, or if not the norm, certainly um, more common than one might imagine. Uh, and we do discuss, look, is it right? What was the consent, et cetera, et cetera. But nevertheless, regardless of, of why or how it happened, uh, that might be a feature of of the um, you could say the routineness of, of of the case at the start that that it would be surprising obviously if there had been any anticipated difficulty that that would have happened even in those centres where this is more normal than in others. Yeah, sure. Um, and Andy, you um, made some comments. I remember about this practice of um, uh, the first intubator, um, perhaps not being someone where that role is expected. Um, but surely this is okay, isn't it? Because we're um, sharing our skills and we're sharing our knowledge. So for example, if, uh, and this is the great thing about video laryngoscopy, because uh, we, can, we can all see the tube passing through the cords of video laryngoscopy and we can all learn what a larynx looks like with, with video laryngoscopy. It's great for learning. Um, but somehow giving an insight into um, you know what, what it's like to pick up a laryngoscope and, and how, what it is to like to pass a tracheal tube, uh, even if that's not expected of your role. Every, everyone gains from that, surely. Yeah, um, I'll, I'll under that, but I'd like to go back to this idea of arousal at some point as well. But let's just deal with that first. I mean, I think um, anaesthesia is a is, is a team sport, um, if you can call it a sport. And I think you know, the more that people understand of each other's roles. Uh, the better it is. And you, you'll know yourself from your own experience that if you've got experienced staff around you, they read each other. You don't generally have to talk to each other to know what's going to happen next. And um, if you've got the same sort of shared situation awareness about what's going on, it all works really well. And where you see it is in the breach, where you've got someone who's not familiar with you or the place you're working uh, or the equipment you're using, and it doesn't work quite so well. And that's the point. Uh, which you have to start putting things into words and making it work uh, explicitly. And I think something else that we're likely to pick up is that when things go wrong, that has to be even more so. And you have to, 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 to articulate it and bring it all out into the open. But I think in general, the more people who have the more skills, then the better. So it's not just about knowing what you do, but it's also being able to take over in an emergency. I mean, clearly you wouldn't necessarily expect one of your anesthetic assistants to intubate the patient for you, but certainly face mask ventilation is something I'd be really pleased uh, to be able to spread and have as many people as possible being able to do. Having said that, um, it's not something that patients would necessarily expect when they come to theatre, whether that's a routine case or whether there's a little more time pressure because it's an emergency situation. And I think that's that's one of the biggest problems with, with that practice for me. Mm. Laura, is this I, would a add, I would add there's probably also an element of 
consent that's important in 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 what um, Andrew says if if that practice is to be followed um and that it should happen within a framework of education and training rather than ad hoc Laura do you have any experience of this from uh, practices in Canada um of yeah. um, um Professor Pandit I, I think that your editorial and what you just said is actually gold um, in terms of, you. you know, I have a lot of trainees coming in. In fact, that's the that's the rule and not the exception for most of my days in the OR. Um, and it's everybody from a respiratory therapist to emergency medicine to uh, intensive care, um, and senior resident, uh, senior residents, junior residents, senior medical students, junior medical students. And, and I do think that we owe it to our patients. Yes, we are an academic center, but I think that we owe it to our patients that we understand um, and that they understand that the education is not ad hoc. It should be in a framework. And when somebody walks into my OR and says, I'm here to intubate, which is not uncommon, <laughs> I don't know if you can relate to that or not, <laughs> that I at least know what their basic skill set is um, and that they're safe. Um, and I've had an experience recently where it did feel like the person did not really have some basic skills. And I just think that if somebody's coming into the OR, we have, we have, um, we have a duty to our patients to know what their skill set is, um, and that it is in the framework of education um, and patient safety. Um, and and that is sometimes not necessarily clear, uh, and especially in these ad hoc teams. And Andy, I'm I'm going to echo what you said, which is when things start to really go off the rails, even in a even in a usual case, you know, you really start to see where where things are missing, um, such as that that screen displaying what what it should. Um, in the ASA closed claims in the United States, we saw that emergency patients were actually, their airways were managed better than the cases that were reported medical legally in patients that were expected to be straightforward. Um, you know, there was a delay in understanding that, that something was wrong. And, and, you know, unfortunately we see that here, we see that in the States and we see it in Canada with our, you know, we are all belonging to one medical uh, legal um, uh, group and so we have good data and with airway mishaps it's it's actually in the usual operations it's not in the emergency operations that we see these these very you know how could you do that mishaps occurring and Andy just to rewind it a little bit to what we were talking about before with a little bit of um, stress being a good thing uh, what are your thoughts on that yeah I mean this the, the paper that JD referred to is commonly quoted but I mean it's from the 1930s and if I remember rightly it refers to laboratory rats rather than people and it's never been proven or investigated any further and one of the problems with psychology referring to the psychology literature is a lot of it is actually derived from experiments even if it's from people experiments on psychology students um, and the difficulty then is applying what you think you might know what you think you might have learned from those experiments uh, to the real world and that's where things like the naturalistic decision-making approach of, of Klein and such like comes in uh, to try and explain how people decide what to do. 
in fast-paced emerging emergency situations. And those, those laboratory-based psychological models, whether they're animals or humans, don't really work. So there is always that problem for me, especially with that particular sort of bell-shaped curve. And I think also what happens is people vary. Um, people and professions vary individually and collectively into the point at which they, their curve starts to change. So, I mean, if you go to uh, some parts of the hospital, for instance, you'll find that lots of the staff there are much more worried about something that you would be when you encounter it because it's part of your emergencies. You see a part of your practice. Um, but I think um, you'd hope that both you, people would be calm in the crisis, but also that they'd respond appropriately when they see a problem in front of them. And part of the work of the anaesthetist is to monitor yourself, monitor your own emotional state, but also to modulate that emotional state of those around you. And although you might be in the thick of trying to solve the problem, the fact that you've got other people there, um, you might expect and you could hope that part of their role when they come and help you is to do those, that emotional work as well as the practical clinical stuff and the cognitive bit as well. I think we underestimate that bit of our practice. And I think when something goes wrong, it, it shows it even more so. Eddie? No, I couldn't, couldn't agree. I think Andrew's summarised that um, beautifully, um, including the history of some of the, uh, the, psycho the psychology of this. I wanted to, to I hope I'm not preempting a, a further question and, and I won't cover that ground completely, but you did mention around teamwork at the point of intubation and mentioned video laryngoscopy. Now, one of the, the points and made in the coroner's report that was that in this case a video, it was a standard Macintosh laryngoscope that was used and not a video laryngoscope. So one can imagine a scenario where there is training, the trainee of whichever nature does the intubation, the trainer can see the screen if there's a video laryngoscope being used. But clearly with a, with a standard Macintosh laryngoscope, that's not going to be the case. And either the trainer needs somehow to appear over the shoulder or recheck, re uh, which they may not be, be minded to do for whatever reason, perhaps because they think it's a straightforward case. Uh, and, and that's another facet of this, um, this discussion is, is that, that important role of video laryngoscopy and training, which you implied and uh, which I echo. And about teamwork as well, um, one of the really interesting sections uh, of the paper was about hierarchies. And I know, I know Laura struggled a little bit with this because I think the way we work in the UK um, is, is a little bit different to, to elsewhere in terms of people on specialist registers, people who've completed training versus people who were referred to as consultant and the hierarchy of that and the interplay. Um, and um, it begs the question whether or not these hierarchies and titles, which we um, are all so familiar with, are, are a friend or a throw in a, in a clinical crisis. Uh, and I'll, I'll come to you first, Andy, uh, for that. Okay. Um, well, I think to me it comes down to the sort of place you work in, and that's not in a crisis. Most of the time we we're, we're in routine work, and um, just that's the that's the point at which a workplace culture shows itself best. So it's very much about how people get on professionally and how they work together, and whether create what you might call psychological safety. And I, I, it's something I can put on the, the Twitter um, feed later on. But it's very much about this is this is your organisation 
uh, the sort of place where you know you can ask questions being, without being made to feel ignorant, or you can raise criticisms without being made to feel disruptive. You know, it's the sort of place that everyone feels comfortable saying what they think uh, and knows that their contributions will be valued. And then if you have that sort of place all the time, then when it comes to a crisis, actually it's much easier. So half the job is done. And I think, um, I think modern healthcare is probably less formal than it used to be. It probably depends where you work and what sort of department you work. But I think as someone who's a permanent member of staff in the Department of Anesthesia, it's very much your job to create that sort of feel. Uh, and again, it comes back not to um, you know, technical skills necessarily, but trying to, trying to set up and create the organisation that you think everyone should be working in for the patient's benefit. Uh, Laura? Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, having uh, worked in uh, British Columbia on the West Coast uh, for 20 years and, and coming now to Ottawa for the last two years, um, having decided that I would move halfway across Canada uh, right before a pandemic, which is a different discussion altogether. Um, um, you know, it's it's fascinating to see same country public health care system, completely different culture. Um, but but what I love about the Ottawa Hospital, and yes, I am going to give total credit to the Ottawa Hospital, is when nurses come into the OR, they do assist us in airway management, and that may be a variation uh, from what you see in the UK. But every everyone is trained on waveform capnography. Um, and so the nurses take great pride, and they should, in getting a good waveform during pre-oxygenation. Uh, you turn the screen literally so that you can see it together. Um, you know, what can I do to, to make that uh, a square waveform? And then after intubation, we also confirm with them that we see waveform chemography. And I love that because the nurses don't have skin in the game in terms of, you know, I'm an airway manager and I, I know what I'm doing. They just say there's no waveform capnography. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for having not an airway manager confirm with you uh, what's going on. Um, and that's, that's, been, that's been my takeaway from the experience of being in a different center. Um, and I'm not sure if that's, um, if that's practiced elsewhere. I'm, I'm curious to see uh, other opinions. Mm. Yeah, JD, it seems like we've um, got a little bit confused in the UK about whose role is what, doesn't it, in terms of uh, uh, consultants versus um, um, people on specialist registers and, and those sorts of um, things. And that the coroner, I think, highlighted that as a as a concern in this report. I think that's right. And, and, and Andrew, again, very nicely um, articulated what, what our ideal sort of you know, professional behaviours, team behaviours should be in in our hospitals. Um, and, uh, you know, to come back to your question of hierarchies, um, and I, you know, we have to have job titles, you know, we, we're employed in various job titles. I mean, that's that's inevitable. And an ideal um, um, set of titles would be reflective of, you know, competencies, experience, training, etc. So it's a shorthand. So that in a, in an emergency or a crisis, you, you know, you know that somebody you know who's a consultant implies a certain set of skills that you don't have to ascertain from no information. It's it's a shortcut to to understanding that. Um, the problem, one problem in the UK is we have blurred that 
to, to an extreme. Um, and I think the North Americans do it better. So we have consultants, honorary consultants, locum consultants, SAS doctors, trust doctors. I mean, I could I could go on. That fellows. It, it's very unclear um, who has what set of skills, and 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 one can no longer assume any, anything. At the other hand, even if you have these ideal titles that reflect competence, what they mustn't do, and this is the challenge, which I don't think has yet been resolved, is they mustn't create they mustn't create a hierarchy. So, so the person with the apparently grander title shouldn't that that shouldn't then inhibit the speaking up and the questioning and the challenge that Andrew referred to. Now, how how the best of both worlds is is achieved is, I think, still still unknown, still a challenge, and, and something perhaps collectively we need to, to look into to resolve. I'd like to think there's a way of doing that, in other words, some way of conveying the information, but without having the creating those barriers. Um, I don't know if Andrew or colleagues knows the answer, and perhaps there is literature out there that helps us do that, but that seems to be the circle that we're trying to square. And, and calling for help is something that we always taught students simulation scenarios from a really uh, early stage when when things start to go wrong um, but I really like the idea that you've expressed there which is don't just call for help say what help you need um, say what the problem is what the crisis is and uh, and what you feel that you need to come in to try and make that better rather than just asking for help because I think there was quite a lot of help available in this case um, um, and people came but but still the problem mm. persisted mm. Mm, thank you. Thanks. I mean, we we did discuss that and and put that discussion in um, for for that reason. That um, one of the good things uh, of of the, the environment in this case was was a large number of people available and and of relatively senior um, st status. Um, but um, their purpose, uh, you know, what what was intended didn't seem to you know the penny didn't drop quickly, um, if if at all. And it did occur to us that, and, and we reflected on our own experiences that, you know, there are occasions when, you know, the case is obvious there's massive blood loss and it's obvious there's blood loss and you need an extra pair of hands to get the blood, to squeeze the blood in, to get more equipment. That's the reason to call for help. And yet on, on, on the other extreme, one might exhaust one's diagnostic, um, you know, um, skills and say, well, I really don't know what's going on. I remember a different case of mine where routine patient just didn't wake up for an hour after surgery and there was no anesthetic on board for an hour and everything was reversed everything was stable thankfully and yet the patient wasn't waking and checking everything top to bottom I couldn't work out why not and I had a very different need for assistance which was can you help <laughs> help me understand what's going on I mean it all all's well that's ended well but um these are just examples of, of extremes. And I think, therefore, it occurred to us that perhaps the communication to say, well, I'm calling for help, I'm pressing the buzzer. But when buzzer has explained very clearly what you think the situation is. Now, that said, the attendees, uh, those attending, um, also need to take appreciate that, but they also need to have a quick check themselves with an independent mind. So it's a bit like the balance we talked about earlier with hierarchies, that although they accept what the uh, the, the primary anaesthetist is saying, they mustn't assume that all of that is true. They must have a check themselves. And if there's anything amiss, um, then speak up. And, and this brings us to the challenges and the question we talked about earlier. 
Uh, Laura? Uh, Professor Pandit, can I ask you around exactly what you're talking about, which is, do you not think our system is weakened by the fact that the person that's diagnostically exhausted or maybe doesn't have the emotional intelligence to recognize that they are misdiagnosing is then the one that needs to have the insight to call for help? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, how, how do we solve I, that? I think, um, yeah, and and really they may not know what they need help in by that yeah. by that point. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I've I've actually had the occasion where somebody says, I don't need help. Um, you know, don't call for help. Um, and I'm not sure quite what that's about, uh, not being a psychologist, but but how do you how do you deal with somebody that doesn't have the insight to call for help? Yeah, I mean that we 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 like to think that we've gone beyond that people not calling for help but you're right perhaps perhaps we haven't so it's almost as if there are several stages there's the, the stage where there's someone who isn't calling for help there's someone who's calling for help without specifying why and and there's someone who's calling for help and specifying the wrong reason because they've become fixated on us fixated so so i agree it, it's an area that perhaps need needs better articulation and to be honest, I'm just doing it on the hoof to raise questions rather than provide answers. But I think we've, I think collectively we've identified an area for further exploration. Definitely. I love your, I love your commentary about having an anesthetist available, the N plus one. Yeah. Uh, and if that person had the role of my role is to come in and provide a second opinion. Yeah. Um, in some ways, whether you appreciate it or not appreciate it, it is the role in the system. Um, uh, I, I, I really do you think that we should be doing that? Um, oh, in well, we are, I mean, I speak here as a clinical director for theatres. We are working our, our hardest to try and get that embedded uh, as the norm in UK hospitals. And I turn to my colleagues uh, and I'm sure they'll um, uh, comment on whether they have it and the extent to which they have it. Clearly, the, the barrier to that is, is funding and recruitment and staffing, uh, because essentially the, the hospital you know, sees that as 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 an anaesthetist employed inverted commas to do nothing uh, because they don't have a list, they don't have a case. They're there simply to provide that extra um, safety net. I, I, I'll, I'll turn to colleagues and see where where we are with the N plus one model. But officially, we are trying to achieve that um, across the country. Yeah, something that I've seen um, uh, more commonly used uh, where I work as well. Uh, Andy, I'll bring you in. Yeah, just on the subject of, of asking for help, and there's no, a number of aspects to it. I mean, clearly in this case, it wouldn't have applied, but um, one of the nice things about working somewhere decent is that you can ask for help with a, a potential difficult case, even before you get into trouble. And, you know, you get that sort of problem-solving, um, you know, collective examination of a potential problem right from the start. And actually that can save the problem that you might, you might otherwise have occurred. And I think the second thing to say is that... Um, it's odd. As I get more experienced in, in lots of ways in, in my life, I, I tend to ask for help more often. And I don't know whether that's laziness, so I don't have to thinking myself, or, or humility. Or, uh, I have no idea. But actually, it, it, it works really well. And the more people who are involved in something, the, the better it turns out, and the more everybody learns as well. So it's a sort of win all round. And, and I think the third thing to say is that um, 
we have quite a small theatre complex and people tend to know what's going on in neighbouring theatres. And if there's a sniff of a problem, you quite often find people coming to help you without being asked. And you know, and coming back to what people say, well, people sometimes people don't want help. Um, obviously, you know, you can say to them, do you want help now or do you like me to help you later, filling in the root cause analysis uh, form later on? Uh, and that soon sort of crystallises their minds. But I think, you know, it's great. One of the nice things about anesthesia is that we can do, you know, we can all do it together. And why you'd not to work with someone else, especially in a stressful situation, I've no idea. Mm. Do, do you have an N plus, are you working towards an N plus one in your theatre? Yeah, we have a what we call starred consultant who's who's available to um, to move around. And also the, the trainees are usually holding a bleep as well, so they're paired up with somebody. The final thing to say on the help is that um, the, the idea that, you just have to say what you need help for and I think also how urgently and it just reminded me of a study that um, anesthesia published about five years back from Tim Cook's team in Bath um, and they compared uh, two ways of describing situations as the, the SBAR model which is a situation background assessment and recommendation and something they introduced which is the traffic lights so it's either green uh, green it's okay I just want a bit of, bit of advice verging on red uh, saying I need you now and I think when you say you need help, it is worth saying how fast you want it as well. So mm. there's the purpose, but also the speed with which you, you need people in there. Mm. I can put again. I can put the link on the uh, onto Twitter later on, so that people can read it for themselves. But I, I can recommend that. So just t- we touched earlier on video laryngoscopy as well, but I, I guess um, this is becoming more. Uh, I mean, with recent meta-analyses. Uh, published in the journal, which was widely uh, tweeted uh, last week as well. Um, it's becoming a more essential part of contemporary practice now, surely, for those reasons that J- JD outlined earlier. Um, Andy and Laura, are you seeing that more commonly in, in practice now? Uh, I, I certainly am. I, I, I certainly am. And, and I would actually, um, I would actually put forward that our, our paradigm, our previous paradigm of Direct laryngoscopy is a basic skill, and then you can move up to video laryngoscopy um, is in 2021, 2022, uh, should be reversed. I think video laryngoscopy is a basic skill. Uh, Everybody should be comfortable and facile with both types of blades. Everybody should know both types of blades and the indication and contraindication to those before moving up to direct laryngoscopy. and in fact, I, I think that that the term direct and indirect is also wrong in that I directly see what you are doing uh, versus I bounce around your right shoulder saying, what do you see? What do you see? And, and look forward to whiskey in the evening because of the stress of <laughs> having a, a trainee say, you know, I'm almost at the cords. Mm. The other thing is that the trainee is then able to see the anatomy and be able to look at the whole map as opposed to just trying to get to City Hall as fast as possible before I take the blade away from them. Um, I do wonder how any of us were taught direct laryngoscopy, seeing as our coaches were blind to what we saw. Um, So yes, uh, and in fact, I insist on video laryngoscopy, except for uh, more senior anesthesia trainees. If I have trainees in other specialties, it's all video laryngoscopy now um, for, uh, for safety's sake. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I think it, it, it's time that we adopted the automatic car um, uh, for uh, for for most situations. Um, so I'm going to just put the final question, uh, and I'll start with Jade. Um, 
What do you think of the solutions to preventing unrecognized esophageal intubation? And you provided some of your thoughts about some of these solutions already in the paper. We, we did. As a, as a very quick preface, if I may, I, I just want to echo Laura's excellent points. Um, I, I, and I think that is one of the core, you know, solutions is 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 the technological aspect. Um, you know, Laura put it extremely well, and um, I, I think we should we should have a specific reason to use the old Macintosh laryngoscopy. It, it, we should have to justify why we're using it. The routine should be video laryngoscopy with screen. And if we're going to use a, a traditional Macintosh, we need to explain why. There has to be a specific reason. I can't think of a reason, actually. I don't, think, I don't know if my colleagues can. I can't think of a reason. But somebody out there can, and they have to explain why they're using this highly unusual historic device. Um, but anyway, I'll move on for that. No, we, 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 we broadly um, uh, divided into, into three. Um, one is the, the education and training uh, that we've all been talking about. Uh, particularly around capnography, and Laura mentioned those points about how they do that uh, in in Canada around the, the you know from right from mask ventilation um, uh, onwards. Uh, so education and training and that centrality of of recognizing, monitoring, and teaching about it is is key. Uh, and, as, and that includes a whole host of human factors training as well that we've been talking about. The second area, which is novel, that we said is, is the personal aspect, the personalized rituals. Uh, you know, we do that in other walks of life, be it driving or uh, you know, other forms of machinery that we operate or, or sports like horse riding or skiing. You know, we, we have those, you know, everyone has those rituals. Um, and it is important to, to have those for airway management and particularly intubation. And in that regard, you know, we've talked about capnography. We mustn't forget. The, the, the clinical checks. Now, we all know those clinical checks aren't accurate, um, but they are helpful in a sort of unidirectional sense because, because if you don't hear the breath sounds uh, or, or, or you don't see the chest rise, you don't see the mist on the tube, that should be an alert. Um, and there is a layer, uh, which I've written about elsewhere, where although the tube might be in the, in the trachea, it might still be in the incorrect place in the trachea. It might be too far down, or too, too proximal so that it might pop out. And the, all of that will be in the clinical signs may be the first thing that tell you those more subtle uh, features of tube positions. But we need to embed that as part of a ritual so that we do A, B, C, D, E, and then, then we know where we are. And the third, which um, I credit Peter Young uh, for suggesting, and he's openly um, published the you know, potential solution, which is sort of smart monitoring which is to combine the information from uh, um, the pressure monitor and the CO2 monitor, uh, because they must be um, uh, working in concert. Uh, if there's a mismatch between them, that's the point at which it indicates uh, it could be um, a, a misplaced uh, tracheal tube. Uh, and he's, he's actually patented that, but gifted that to uh, the association uh, and uh, other organizations. So he's freely um, shared, shared that um, intellectual property, which is really good. And the alarm would be consider esophageal intubation or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and the alarm would would it also be smart, so it would just wouldn't be a noise. The idea is that it would be um, uh, sort of a directed alarm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Andy and Laura, um, open to you for the um, final point, which is about how how this can be prevented. And I just want to re-emphasise something you said earlier, Laura, 
um, this esophageal intubation isn't about saying it wouldn't happen to me, is it? It's, it could happen to any of us. Uh, and um, and I think this this is why this has been so, so popular on Twitter is because it's one of the most feared complications of anaesthesia, along with other things like um, extensile awareness, general and general anaesthesia and uh, residual paralysis. Esophageal intubation is one of those things that makes your heart sink, isn't it? Like you've already said. Um, how can we prevent it? Um, well, I just want to point out, I, I didn't want to give the impression that video laryngoscopy will save us all uh, in terms of being able to see uh, it go through the cords. And in fact, you know, if you really want to, you can put it right into the esophagus, pull up uh, with video laryngoscopy or direct laryngoscopy, cause ischemia of both sides of the esophagus. And you would swear that it was um, the glottic opening, particularly in an emergency situation where you really want it to be the case. So, um, so waveform capnography uh, is essential. I think we need to actually um, strive for universal waveform capnography for every single intubated patient at all times, not just at the beginning when you put the tube in, particularly in the emergency room and in transport, um, I, I have found that, yes, we did all the checks, but as the patient was, you know, rocking along going into CT scan, it can become dislodged. And waveform capnography is the only device that gives you that continuous uh, feedback. Um, and so there's been a lot of talk about ultrasound and the use of, you know, lung sliding. Well, you can't have two ultrasound probes on both lungs at all times. Waveform, there is no replacing waveform capnography uh, from return of spontaneous ventilation to continuous, am I still in, in the trachea or endobronchial, but at least somewhere. Um, and so I think that we need to really push um, and support our emergency room colleagues, uh, emergency medicine colleagues and intensivists and pre-hospital care um, and, and support those efforts and really price things out, uh, particularly in a public health care system to say, this is invaluable um, and, and we, we must have it at, at all times. So that, that would be my, my final statement. It is inexcusable. Uh, to not have continuous waveform capnography for, for all intubated patients. Andy? Uh, yeah, I'd echo that. Um, I'd also just say that the two problems you mentioned, which is um, accidental awareness under general anesthesia and difficulties intubating a, a patient who can't breathe for themselves, come about because of the use of neuromuscular blockers. And you can sidestep that completely by doing an awake intubation under topical anesthesia to which video laryngoscopy lends itself perfectly. And I don't know why people don't do that so often. There's all sorts of patients who are suitable for that. And if you do it right, and it's not particularly difficult for most patients, it works a treat. Now, maybe not in the emergency setting, but actually, why not? It takes away the stress for the anaesthetist of trying to get the tube in in a short time. And if it gets trickier, that's even more stressful. I think the key to preventing it is just what you might call the civilised worry and the appreciation that anything can go wrong at any time to any patient or any anaesthetist. And if you bear that in mind, you're more likely to pick up problems and try and respond to them when they occur. Quite right. I completely agree with that, Andy. Um, so thank you very much uh, to um, all, all the guests today, all three of you, Laura, Andy and JD. That's really a really fantastic discussion to accompany the paper, uh, which is free to read all week, free to read and download. 
print out or read on your phone or tablets. It's a really, really great editorial uh, available on Early View. Um, this will be made into a podcast and be available on Spotify and iTunes and various other places as well thereafter. Uh, and it, it's available on Twitter forever as well. Uh, so thank you very much, uh, Laura, Andy, JD, and goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bye-bye. Mike, as always. Excellent job. Thank you. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>